Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. As a stage-struck teenager in 1960s Dublin, I saw every play that my school schedule and my limited pocket money would allow. Some were mediocre, many were impressive, but only one changed my life. Brian Friel's Philadelphia Here I Come at the Gaiety Theatre in 1964, and I saw it many times. This play spoke to me in a profound way, and it confirmed my growing belief that working in the theatre was my only possible career choice. In 1977, I got the chance to meet my hero when Tomás Macana, then Artistic Director of the Abbey Theatre, organised a meeting with a view to me directing Friel's latest play, Living Quarters. Without Tomás's gregarious personality, that meeting would have been a complete disaster. Shy by nature and anxious not to seem stupid before the great man, I had very little to add to the conversation. Friel also seemed diffident and non-committal, and I was sure that I had blown any chance to work with him. Luckily, he overlooked my nervousness, and I got to direct the play. Since then, I have directed many of his plays in Ireland and abroad, and working with Brian Friel has been the most significant artistic collaboration of my career. Translations is one of Friel's greatest plays. Its first production, so ably directed by Art O'Brien, inaugurated Field Day Theatre Company and the premiere in Derry's Guildhall in 1980 was one of the most significant events in recent Irish theatre history. So I was very excited to be asked to direct the American premiere at the New York's Manhattan Theatre Club the following year. The distinguished Irish-American actor Barnard Hughes played Hugh Moore O'Donnell, the hedge schoolmaster. Now, Barney was a gifted actor with very great instincts, but he had some difficulty understanding the final speech of the play, which begins, Herbs antiqua fuit. There was an ancient city which tis said that Juno loved above all the lands, and it was the goddess's aim and cherished hope that here should be the capital of all nations. The speech, drawn from Virgil's Aeneid, compares the fall of Carthage with the destruction of a native Irish culture. In early rehearsals, we wrestled back and forth about the meaning, and I assured Barney that Brian would make it all clear when he arrived later in the process. Well, Brian had barely taken off his coat when Barney asked plaintively, what does this speech mean? Brian's response was typical of him. I don't know, Barney, what do you think? Barney looked at me in absolute despair. Even the goddamn playwright doesn't know what it means. By the time we opened the play, Barney delivered that speech movingly and with absolute confidence. Brian stayed in Catherine Hepburn's elegant brownstone during our rehearsals. Miss Hepburn was away, but her Irish housekeeper, Nora, often welcomed me to dinner. Nora was of that generation of Irish women who believed that men at work needed a hearty meal, and she fed us well. During one dinner, as we enjoyed our meat and several veg, Nora would appear every few minutes. Everything all right, Mr. Friel? Grand, Nora, grand, Brian would reassure her. Nora kept appearing. Everything all right, Mr. Friel? Finally, Brian said, 
You don't need to worry about us, Nora. Well, Mr. Friel, said a somewhat peeved Nora, Miss Hepburn has a bell at her feet for me to come and clear the plates, and you keep pressing it. Would you ever stop? One internationally acclaimed playwright properly told off. Despite his justified reputation as a serious and a scholarly man, Brian Friel also had a real fondness for low humour and vaudeville. The only show on Broadway that interested him was Sugar Babies, a review starring Mickey Rooney. The main attraction was the appearance of the legendary dancer Anne Miller, whom Friel remembered having the most expensive legs in Hollywood. Despite her advancing years, Miss Miller could kick and tap with the best of them. At one point, she artfully shed a lacy garter and threw it straight into Brian Friel's lap. Oh, Bigar, he whispered to me, this is a far cry from Herb's Antiqua Fuit. One of our most significant collaborations was my 1980 production of Faith Healer at the Abbey. The Broadway premiere starring James Mason was not a critical success and it closed early. I loved the play and I urged Friel to allow me to direct an Abbey production. He was uneasy about inviting further critical rejection and so I let the matter drop. But shortly afterwards he agreed that if I could persuade Donald McCann to play Frank Hardy, the faith healer, he would welcome the production. Then in his late 30s McCann was one of Ireland's greatest actors but he was not an immediate match for this role. However, Friel's instinct was absolutely correct and Donald's brilliant performance has now reached legendary status in Irish theatre. That production confirmed Faith Healer as Friel's masterpiece and it's now widely regarded as one of the seminal plays of the 20th century. Brian Friel's death created a huge vacuum in the world of theatre but he left a magnificent legacy to be appreciated for generations to come. He also left me, and many others in our profession, with a host of memories that we will cherish for the remainder of our lives. One of my earliest memories is a family trip to Dublin in August 1987. I was three. Having come from Donegal, Dublin made a big impression on me and I can clearly remember walking down a busy street holding my sister's hand, swimming in an outdoor pool in Dunleary and taking a trip on the dart. The purpose of the trip was completely lost on me at the time. My father was acting on the stage in the Olympia Theatre. He was part of an amateur drama group called the Lifford Players. My grandfather, Terry O'Doherty, co-founded the Lifford Players in the early 1950s and they were a successful group on the amateur drama circuit. It was a big part of our family life. My aunt took to the stage as a teenager and was later joined by my father and my uncle. More recently, seven of my cousins became involved. Growing up, 
we were very familiar with the rhythm of the amateur drama year. The season started in the autumn, when the group would read through parts and finally settle on a play. After Christmas, the real business started. Rehearsals three nights a week, a feeling of despair that it might not work out and the relief of seeing it all come together. The dress rehearsals would start in February and a few early shows before venturing out to the festival circuit. Kilty Clauher, Bally Shannon, Carrick Moore, Tubber Curry. The ultimate aim was to make it to Athlone in May for the All-Ireland Open Drama Finals. As children, we would wander round backstage before shows and watch as the set was brought out of the back of a trailer and assembled by the crew. I used to think we were helping out, but looking back, I'm sure we were a nuisance. The mineral and crisps were not so much a treat as a ploy to keep us out of the way for a while. I used to watch the shows from the front row, proud that I knew the actors and that afterwards I could personally go up and say, well done, to each of them. I loved watching my grandfather on stage. He was a terrific actor. He was quite understated. He didn't hog the limelight or try to steal the show. He had a keen sense of timing, a skill that as a director he could impart to his actors. He was able to get the best out of his cast. He knew when they had a winning show. And in 1987, Lifford Players had a winning show. Translations by Brian Freel. They had a perfect cast and made it to Athlone for the finals. The Welsh adjudicator loved their production and by the end of the week they were all Ireland champions. At the time the winners were awarded a week in the Peacock Theatre in Dublin extending their season to July. They had a wonderful week in the Peacock. Many in the group remember the thrill of Gay Byrne praising the production on his morning radio show. They went back to Donegal on a high, a remarkably successful season over, or so they thought. About two weeks later, my grandfather received a phone call wondering if Lifford players would be interested in putting on their play in the much larger Olympia Theatre, which had about ten times the capacity of the Peacock. The Olympia had had a cancellation and needed to fill a gap in the schedule for a week in August. This was not normal for an amateur drama group. And so, after only a little persuasion, the troupe headed off to Dublin for the second time that summer. They posed for photos under the iconic arch of the Olympia with the words Lifford players present their acclaimed production of Translations by Brian Freel displayed above them. My grandfather had a contented, proud smile. He was exactly where he wanted to be. These photos would later be enlarged and hung proudly in homes in Donegal, Derry and Tyrone for many years. For this week, they were not amateurs and the show was a triumph. My father has often reminded us of this line from a national newspaper. There are only two shows worth seeing in town this weekend. Druid in the Abbey and Lifford in the Olympia. My grandfather died in the last days of February, aged 95. His timing, as ever, was impeccable. Within two weeks, the country would be in lockdown. He died at home, surrounded by his family, 
a fate so cruelly denied to so many. His many grandchildren were able to gather for his funeral and the past and present members of the Lifford players stood shoulder to shoulder giving him his final applause as he left the church. In his wake room, above his coffin, we hung two photos. One of him and his beloved wife Peggy, to whom he was devoted, and one of him standing proudly on Dame Street under the iconic arch of the Olympia Theatre in August 1987. All around my hat I will wear the green willow And all around my hat for a twelvemonth and a day And if anybody asks me the reason why I'm wearing it It's all because my true love is far, far away In my final year at UCC, I played the part of S.B. O'Donnell in Brian Friel's early, brilliant and groundbreaking play, Philadelphia, Here I Come. Although only in my early twenties, it was somewhat ridiculous for me to be playing screwballs, but this is what happens in university. Somebody has to play the old people. After qualifying, I toured Germany with a company visiting gymnasiums, or secondary schools, in a culture through theatre project. To address the emotional cost of emigration in Ireland, we used an extract from Philadelphia Here I Come, and this time I played Screwball's son, Gar, public. I eventually left Ireland to teach chemistry in recently independent Zimbabwe, and as a going-away present, my friends gave me selected plays of Brian Friel and appropriately wrote messages on the flyleaf. One said, Promise me you won't try and do any of these with the Zimbabweans. It wouldn't work. Thankfully, I didn't follow that advice, and in a production of Philadelphia Here I Come, I played Gar Private. In fact, it did work and was intimately understood by our Zimbabwean audience, a country with a similar colonial history and familiar with emigration. Back in Ireland in 1995, I went to see a production of Philadelphia Here I Come at the Abbey, and that night I met my now wife of 23 years. Philadelphia Strikes Again. Although Philadelphia was the play that introduced me to Brian Friel's work, it was his play Making History about the life of Hugh O'Neill and the flight of the Earls that introduced me to Brian Friel himself some 12 years later in 2007. That year was the 400th anniversary of the flight of the Earls. I wrote to Friel asking for his permission to stage Making History in site-specific locations associated with O'Neill's journey. To my great delight, he was supportive of the idea. And this started an almost two-year tour with Ouroboros Theatre Company from the battle site in Kinsale throughout Ireland and then through France, Belgium, Switzerland and finally ending with a production of Making History in the Irish College in Rome. A visit to O'Neill's grave in the Church of San Pietro de Montorio completed an extraordinary journey. O'Neill's grave lies hidden under a carpet at the gospel side of the altar and it was very emotional when the beautiful ornate gravestone embedded in the floor was finally revealed. 
All along the way, Friel kept in touch to see how it was going, mentioning that he had a particular grawl for this play. Unfortunately, around that time, he had suffered a stroke, so couldn't join us anywhere along the way, much as he wanted to. However, we were invited to do the play again one last time at the McGill Summer School in Glenty's Donegal in 2009. I was delighted that Brian was going to be there. Walking out on stage as Hugh O'Neill, I sneaked a look into the audience. Sitting in the front row were three of the most iconic Irishmen of my lifetime, Brian Friel, Seamus Heaney and John Hume. I took a deep breath and reminded myself to be careful what you wish for. Thankfully the show went very well, but most importantly Friel was pleased, and I and the other actors spent most of the rest of a long night with him and got to know him. There was much laughter and gossip and general crack. From that point, until he died in 2015, I had many more meetings and correspondences with Brian. I have a folder of his letters in his inimitable style, typed and then corrected by hand, which I treasure. Shortly before he died, I went to see him and Anne at their home in Greencastle. I sat on the side of his bed, Brian lying there with his dog, and although he was dying, we still had the gossip and the crack, insofar as you do under these circumstances. I knew when I left him that it was goodbye. During the summer, I went back to visit Friel's grave in Glenties. His gravestone lies flat, like O'Neill's, and the beautiful black marble reflects Brian's treasured Donegal sky. It is a fitting place for him to rest among his people. Sleep well, old friend. August 1980. We had packed the car with clothes, books, games, footballs and food. Our sons Oshin and Owen were seven and four and excited for this adventure. We headed north through Meath and Monaghan and across the border at the army checkpoint at Ochnacloy, County Tyrone. The boys stared in fascination at the young British soldiers armed with real guns. Identification and purpose of visit to Northern Ireland. We were heading to Derry, we said, to work on a production of a new play by Brian Friel. A new play by the master, Brian Friel, created a buzz of excitement for anyone interested in theatre at that time. His plays belonged in places like the Abbey or the Gate or the West End in London. So why was his new play, Translations, set in a hedge school in a village in Donegal in 1833, as British soldiers convert Irish place names to English, having its world premiere at the Guildhall in Derry in September 1980. Field Day Theatre Company had been set up by Brian and the actor Stephen Ray to produce this play. 
It was a courageous and daring enterprise, as Brian used to call it, to find a new audience outside the established theatres and to explore a new context for his work. They had invited my husband, Art O'Brien, who had a background in community arts activism in Dublin and Derry, and who was also a theatre director, to join them in the enterprise. Art was aware from his work in Derry that the City Council, which by that time included both nationalists and unionists, would be open to the idea of a kickstart for a renewal of cultural life in the city, which had been ravaged by years of war. They were welcomed with open arms, and after much discussion of suitable venues, the historic Guildhall was chosen. Not a theatre at all. It had been recently restored and reopened after bomb damage. A symbolic building, which had been the setting for a previous and controversial Friel play, The Freedom of the City, about the atrocity of Bloody Sunday. So there we found ourselves, settling into a house in Drumahoe on the waterside on the outskirts of Derry. The big house had a large garden and from outside the walls you could hear the orange bands with their pipes and drums practising along the roads. The apprentice boys were preparing for their annual march through the streets. As we unpacked the car, Oshin, full of pent-up energy, managed to find a small tricolour in the boot, still there from the St Patrick's Day parade. He charged around the garden, waving the tricolour, innocently marking out his territory. Hard to explain to a seven-year-old from Dublin that this might not be a good idea. We shared an apartment in the house with Mick and Peggy Lally, who had arrived on the bus to Derry with their baby daughter, Salog. Together, we formed a little family group, a bubble. The house was full of love and the Irish language, as Mick and Peggy, who came from Inishman on the Aran Islands, were native Irish speakers, and we were attempting to raise our boys bilingually. Translations is a play about language. Mick was playing Manus, I was playing Moya, who speaks no English. She falls in love with Yolland, a British soldier who speaks no Irish. I have a memory of the entire cast and crew of that first production of Translations sitting around a big mahogany table in the rehearsal room of the Guildhall. It was the first read-through of the play, always a tense moment for everyone. Brian sat at the top of the table and Art at the other end. When the reading was ended, there was spontaneous applause. All of us, cast and crew, realised that the script was as perfectly composed as a piece of music. Our job was to deliver it to an audience in four weeks' time. Brian was with us throughout the rehearsal period, a focused, witty and benign presence. I'm sure there must have been problems behind the scenes, but if there were, they play no part in my memories. The opening night... The rich Donegal tones of actor Ray McAnally's voice speaking the last lines of the play. As the lights faded to black, silence. Applause erupted. The lights came up and the cast appeared for a well-rehearsed bow. The applause continued, so we returned again and again. 
The playwright joined us on stage to cheers of approval. He said something about a prophecy of St. Columkilla coming true. Did he really say that St. Columkilla prophesied that a theatre company called Field Day would take Derry by storm on the 23rd of September 1980? What a night that was. The aliveness of it all. The play went on to tour the small towns and halls of Northern Ireland as planned and then to Belfast, Dublin and Cork. Then other productions opened in London and Broadway and 40 years on it has become a classic of world theatre. There were many other plays. A huge success ten years later with Dancing at Lunasa. Field Day Theatre Company toured throughout Ireland for another ten years. Five years after the death of the playwright, I think of his work and his legacy. I think of love and death and memory, which are strong themes in all his plays. I remember how the entire Friel family and his much-loved wife Anne, who was his rock, supported and welcomed us all to their home with such warm hospitality. I remember the cast travelling the dark roads of the north in a van, back to our lodgings, exhilarated after a performance to a packed hall in Carrickmore or Maharafelt or Armagh, where it seemed the entire town had turned out, singing on the bus, ignoring soldiers with guns cocked, hunched down behind bushes in dark corners. My own lasting memory is the music of words. In the doomed love affair between Moya, the character I played, and Yolland, the British soldier, their only shared language is the place names of Donegal. Bun Nahoan Drimdu Polnagirach Lismuil Lisnangal Lisnangra Carigafuil Carignori, Loch Nien, Moloch, Parth, Tor, Lag. I wish to God you could understand me. Bees honour their keeper, for Brian Friel. Settling on his head, five bees, soft as air, light as a soul ascending, sweeten the day, hive the night with colour, yellow gold, a burst of pure white honey smearing his skin, like Adam with the first apple.
When I think back to the summer of 2015 and my last visit to Brian Friel in Greencastle, one memory stands out. Him showing me the Anthony Palliser portrait that now hangs over the entrance to the Brian Friel Theatre at Queen's University Belfast, where I work as a drama lecturer. The Abbey has one, the Gate has one, the Lyric has one, so I think Queen's should have one too, he said. And I was cast back to that convivial evening six years before when a proud assembly of academics and artists had gathered to formally name the theatre in his honour. Seamus Heaney paid tribute to his old friend and Friel himself declared that after a lifetime of paying little heed to the nice things people said about him, at the age of 80 he had decided to embrace it all with alacrity. So now his portrait sits in pride of place in the foyer of the theatre his daughter Judy told me he liked to call his own. A guardian angel watching over all the students below his expression at once thoughtful and demanding, which seems appropriate, for he was ever rigorous in his approach to his own craft. Famously reticent when asked to speak about his work, one phrase stands out from the collection of articles and interviews assembled by Christopher Murray for his 70th birthday. The play, he said, arises from its form. And that, for me, is what most characterised the way his work progressed, each play testing some new theatrical hypothesis. When Gareth O'Donnell, the protagonist of Philadelphia Here I Come, made his first appearance in Dublin's Gaiety Theatre in 1964, accompanied by another actor playing his private self, it was, as the director Conal Morrison has put it, the equivalent of splitting the theatrical atom it released previously unimaginable energy onto the Irish stage, and it was only the beginning of Friel's seemingly endless capacity for radical innovation. The narrators in Winners, eerily foreshadowing the fate of Joe and Mag as they plan their future together on the last day of their lives. The Brechtian framing of the naturalistic world of the three refugees in Derry's Guildhall in Freedom of the City, the Chekhovian homage of aristocrats, the theatrical sleight of hand that allows the audience to hear two languages in translations. With each device, Friel challenges assumptions about his dramaturgical style. If endless innovation was the hallmark of his stagecraft, the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth is, for me, at the heart of Friel's drama. As topical as this seems in this brave new world of fake news and alternative facts, Friel was engaging with the subjective nature of experience from early in his writing career. Gar's vivid childhood memory of going fishing with his father in a blue boat is cruelly debunked. Casimir's cherished family mythology and aristocrats becomes discredited. And this theme reaches its most developed form with Faith Healer in which three accounts of the same events reveal subtle yet significant discrepancies. But the critical reception of translations gave Friel pause for thought. Although he protested that it was fundamentally a play about language, it was interpreted by some of the English press as political propaganda. Friel was no stranger to such charges. Freedom of the City, itself an exploration of competing versions of the truth, 
had been accused of Republican bias. When Making History finally appeared in 1988, it met the ambiguous nature of truth head-on, with Hugh O'Neill expressing his deep suspicion of the written historical record. One of the great ironies of Friel's later work is his growing doubt as a master wordsmith in the reliability of words. In the marvellous final speech of Dancing at Lunasa, he imagines a mode of performance in which words were no longer necessary. And Friel was to take this suspicion of language even further in one of his later plays. In performances, actors representing the ghost of the Czech composer Janáček and a young PhD student share the stage with the musicians of a string quartet. The student is researching Janáček's life, including the intimate letters he wrote to the married woman with whom he was infatuated. And the composer's ghost is not best pleased. Why not let the music do the talking, Janáček protests. It is a feeling undoubtedly close to Friel's own heart, the desire to let his work speak for itself. In the souvenir booklet published to coincide with a festival marking his 70th birthday, Friel wrote about the mythical Russian city of Kitej. Whenever it sensed that marauders were approaching, it encased itself in a mist. But its church bell never stopped ringing. In a sentiment that will be echoed by members of many of his audiences, for Friel, the true gift of theatre is the ringing bell which reverberates quietly and persistently in the head long after the curtain has gone down. On this morning's programme, we heard Herbs Antiqua Fuit by Joe Dowling. Lifford in the Olympia was by Emma O'Doherty. Making History with Brian Friel by Dennis Conway. The Master by Nuala Hayes. Bees Honour Their Keeper for Brian Friel, a poem by Vincent Woods. And Splitting the Theatrical Atom was by David Grant. And the music, The Way You Look Tonight, sung by Fred Astaire. All Around My Hat, performed by White Raven. Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor, second movement, played by Nicola Benedetti with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. Oft in the Stilly Night, played by Donald Clancy on guitar. And Nocturne No. 1 in E-flat major by John Field, played on piano by Elizabeth Joy Rowe. That selection from the Sunday Miscellany recent archive marks Brian Friel's birthday, which falls today. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more on this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, take a look at rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.